Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Cheryl Collins Isaac about her story, Spin, which appears in issue 23 of The Common. Cheryl Collins Isaac immigrated to the United States in 1996 from Liberia, West Africa. She is a 2022 Edith Wharton Straw Dog Writer-in-Residence and the recipient of the 2020 James Baldwin Fellowship at McDowell. She has had fiction, nonfiction, and poetry published in Chicago Quarterly Review, The Ocean State Review, Hawaii Pacific Review, South Writ Large, Prime Number Magazine, and more. She earned her MFA in creative writing from the University of Tampa. Cheryl Collins-Isaac, thanks for joining us. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. We're so happy to have you. Would you set the scene for our conversation to sort of describe where you're calling from now? I am currently calling from Carlisle, Pennsylvania, um, where I'm working on actually um, trying to get some writers together to talk about craft. So that is where I'm calling from. That sounds great. Um, I would love to start off with a reading from your story. Would you read the first few paragraphs for us? Absolutely. I would love to. All right. This is a reading from Spin. The mind works like a solar system, an interplanetary medium to keep things running smoothly. Moses speaks in a memorized whisper, his voice soft, like the warm towel he places on her head. Hawa closes her eyes drifts with the sensation of rocks pounding palm nuts open, small fingers reaching inside for kernels. They are teenagers again, and he is her caring boyfriend who brings her palm kernels for snacks when she lies sick with malaria. She heals and they celebrate with dance, the small of her back supported by his palms as she melts into a ballet fondue. They dance under the palm tree, pretend they are ballet partners at school, performers on stage, if only things were that simple again. When you start to remember the painful things of the past, one of the planets in your solar system starts to dance and your medium is obstructed temporarily. Only temporary, yeah? Moses sounds sure, confident, like the doctor he will never become. She stares at the only painting on the wall, next to the bed, a black and white portrait of Jesus. He has no color, except for the red splashes of blood running from his outstretched palms, from the nails in his feet, from his side. His eyes measure disbelief, but a faint smile rests on his lips. The artist chose to paint him alive, alive, his pain lucid as it courses her veins. Moses places her worn ballet shoes next to her on the bed. He takes her hand in his and gently massages her palm. He gazes at her and she feels drums beat, rhythm motions from a crevice within her consciousness. You would try to eat if I go make food, he asks. She nods. Thank you. Thank you for reading that. For our listeners who may not have read your story yet, would you just describe what the piece is about? Yeah, so this piece is about a couple who is facing loss. You know, they're overcoming tragedy um, there are Liberian immigrants who have settled in the Appalachian Mountains. 
She's a stripper who really is a trained ballet dancer, and she's had dreams of being on the formal ballet stage. He wanted to become a doctor, but he became disabled during war. And so the story captures them as they both try to recreate their dreams. And in that, in that effort, they cling to each other and search for belonging and meaning. That's a beautiful summary. Um, I would love to hear how you came to write this story. Um, what, what inspired you to start work on it? And, and how did the, the first draft come together? You know, the first part of this story, I was actually flipping through um, a few of my journals. I love um, keeping journals. And Mm -hmm. I started the first few sentences as a poem. I thought it was going to be a poem. I had done Mm -hmm. some research and I was going to try and switch into a poem. I tried a few drafts. It just didn't work out. Um, And so I kept that. And then as I started working more on it, it seemed like it wanted to be a story. And so I started to, you know, figure out, is it going to be dialogue? Is it going to be, you know, part of, and, and, and so this has been since 2017. Wow. <laughs> How long it's been. So, I mean, do you feel like it came together? Uh, like, did you have the idea for the, um, the ballet dancer first or the mountains? Uh, like what, what was sort of the jumping off point? I think it started with the music. Um, I think that's where it started from. I So I write with music a lot. Um, and sometimes I use the noise blocking headphones. You know, I love those big ones that speaker <laughs> headphones. <laughs> and I use those and it, it transports me to another world. And so I heard the sound and I immediately, the beat and the sound and the movement made me go into the story itself. It's actually, that's that's what led the story. And then um, at one point, I thought that it was really going to be from Moses's perspective. And so I played around with that. The story did not want to be told from his perspective, even though <laughs> we see a lot of him through Hawa, but I mm-hmm. had to switch it around to her. And um, you could see, you know, it opened up a lot more that way. And then I just started writing, you know, how you start and just continue. And that's, that's how I just went into that flow of the story. Oh, that's really amazing. I love that you write with music. I always hear people talking about how they can't write with music. And I'm like, I can't write without music. (laughs) (laughs) That's so great. Um, I remember how thrilled I was to read this piece in the submission queue. Um, I just loved every minute of it. And it always felt unexpected, sort of moving in, in surprising directions. And then you totally nailed the ending. And I was so relieved <laughs> when somebody sticks the landing. Um, but that, that was a really long time ago. Um, I read it in January 2021. And, and, and I was assuming that you wrote it ages before that. You just said 2017. So I wonder, like, what is it like finally having out in the world, having it out in the world being read? Um, I, I sometimes feel you know, reading things that you wrote a long time ago can be such a time capsule into who you were at that time or what you were thinking about at that time. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I've I've realized that a lot of my, with my writing, this happens, you know, sometimes you write and you put the first draft away and then suddenly you come back to it and realize when the story is saying I'm ready to be seen or I'm ready to be told. Um, and it has been, this one has been a long time in the making. I was so 
pleasantly surprised and just happy when you read it and you go, you, you know, you went, well, I love this ending because once I started writing it, um, even though there was a whole lot of editing in the middle, the ending landed on the first time, meaning the same ending that the story has now is mm-hmm. what I, you know, uh, I started with. Um, it just, the story made it, you know, it went in that direction and I just followed. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, looking at it now, you know, you, you see the, the difference, um, you know, I was in a different headspace and I was also uh, being led by my characters and being led by a moment in time um, in a story that, you know, begged to be told. But then, you know, even now, as you look at current day and current events, I'm so hap- happy that it is actually published in 2022 because it still says a whole lot about, you know, the human condition and some some, you know, experiences that never come to surface that, you know, people could, the world could learn about. Yeah, it feels like, I mean, since 2017, we've, we've just started talking about immigration and immigrants in America so much more. And, and this is such a a beautiful portrayal of of that and sort of the, the struggle of that, but also the, the, you know, the beauty of it and and the, you know, the success they finally find. Um, We we go go ahead. No, I was gonna say definitely. Yes, you make a good point. Um, it's funny you talk about the ending cause I did want to talk a little bit about it. I don't want to like, we don't have to give, give away the specifics of the ending, but I, I just wanted to ask about it because I feel like it's doing exactly what an ending should do. It's sort of surprising, but it feels totally earned and it, and it ties up some things nicely and then leaves other things that we've seen in the story, story sort of open-ended and, and, and not solving everything. And I just love that. Um, so you said that it sort of just came, you know, that was the beginning, that was the ending right from the beginning. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm just curious, like, did you have to play with the balance at all? Like, did, were there times where you felt like you needed to like tie up more loose ends or like that it wasn't complete enough? Yes. Um, there are many times that happen and especially when working with the common, I really did appreciate, you know, having you uh, as an editor because it really helped, you know, there, there were some characters, some some um, layers to the character that I hadn't I realized I hadn't explained. Um, there were some character motivations I hadn't explained, and there were just different things that would have brought the reader a little bit closer to the character's story and um, inner conscious. So those were the things I played around with and just trying to make sure that the reader got closer to the character. Um, and then also that the story just evolved um, correctly and unfolded in a way that anyone reading the story could understand what was happening. I love that. I, you know, it, it, I, I was thinking about, I always think about like what sort of revisions we did with the story before I talked to someone. And I, I don't remember us doing a, a lot of revision at all, but I do remember, um, yeah, the, what, what you said, which is that we just added, sort of clarified some things and, and added things that, that would sort of make make a little more explicit certain things that maybe were implied just to make sure that the readers could really get in there with, with Hawa. Yeah, and you all really did because one instance was when, um, so, you know, I talked in the beginning about the story being about the um, these two characters clinging to each other, and I hadn't fully, you know, explained that, and um, you all brought those questions, and I thought, well, this is in my head. I need to put it on paper, mm-hmm. um, and it just showed why they have this bond and why they, they survive together. 
Yeah, I, I, I do really think that's a, a really lovely part of the story. And it just th- makes me think, you know, it's such a struggle as a writer and also as an editor, you're always trying to make sure that things are clear, but also, you know, not, you don't want to put everything on the page, <laughs> you know, you don't want to have to, sh- to tell everything or explain everything. And so finding that, finding that balance is always kind of the, the trick with every story. Yeah. One thing I love about this piece is that even though there it does have this this suffering and trauma in it, really at the heart of it is these these traumatic experiences that Moses and Hawa have had in their past. It also has these really exquisite, gorgeous moments of beauty. Um, we have like the Appalachian scenery. Um, I love the home cooked food and the music, like you said, and the, the sensuality between these two lovers, which is really lovely. Um, the really graceful descriptions of Hawa's ballet movements. Um, there, there's such a pleasure in just reading those things, like really like consuming them as a reader. And and it makes me feel like there's so much love in this story. Like that's the word that I come up with. And I'm not really talking about romantic love. Like what does that make you think of? <laughs> I love that you say that because I wanted to lead with love. I wanted to lead. I mean, everything in the story from how the community embraces them, you know, there's that love from the way they take care of each other, from um, the way they approach life. Um, and just from everything I, you know, pulled out of me and put on the page, you know, I felt as if I was embraced by my characters. Um mm-hmm. And I mean, it was just an enjoyable experience writing this. The ballet, I had to research a lot, Mm -hmm. um, but I loved doing that. I mean, that led me into, you know, areas I hadn't explored. Um, And it also helped elevate beauty in the story because I love working at the intersection of beauty and pain or beauty and suffering. I love showing how they coexist. Sometimes people think that suffering exists without beauty or, you know, vice versa, that, you know, you see someone and they look perfectly put together that, oh, there must be nothing they're going through. Um, So I love to sort of delve beneath the surface with, you know, um, what someone could be experiencing or may have experienced or could still be experiencing when you look at them. That's not all you see. It's sort of looking at a beautiful portrait and you don't know the the work the artist put into that or the sweat and tears that went into that. And I also love exploring the intersection of art, but this time around exploring dance was just so fascinating to me. I got so caught up into it. I um, listened to so much music to, to put it you know, to sort of make them parallel. I um, explored, you know, just the background of the different movements. And I just let the character fall into those movements, the rhythm. Um, and yeah, it, it it really just motivated and moved me. Oh, I love that. Uh, yeah, I really feel like I can feel your, your love for the characters. And I, I love that you felt that they loved you back. <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, I just wanted to ask quickly about um, Willie. We just haven't mentioned him at all. He's sort of this third character in the story, um, a a neighbor. Um, I just, I really liked him. He's so fully formed and and lively. Um, His dialogue is great. Was it fun to write him? It was fun to write Willie. Willie is so authentic and he, he, um, he is a, a very important part of the story because he shows also, um, you know, some parts of Hawa and some of her hesitations, 
um, some of our insecurities. He shows Moses um, his strength, his insecurities. Um, and he represents, you know, the Appalachian Mountains. He represents America for them. They're, you know, new, they're Liberian immigrants. Um, he's a war veteran. And so they have that in common. They've all seen war from different perspectives. So he added such um, a different layer to the story. And I, I enjoyed him as a character as well. Great. Um I know we've already talked a little bit about the process of putting this story together, but I'm always really curious about um, how writers approach revision, you know, for, for either for this story or just for your work in general, even your nonfiction or your poetry. I wonder if there's sort of any like um, ways that you usually approach your work when you're looking to revise. I, that's interesting. It's always when you, especially when you play with different genres, it's, it's always a mm-hmm. tough one. So with, um, you know, I can back up a little bit and go maybe to the to the crafting of it because I, I approach nonfiction very differently. Um, I have with nonfiction, I already have the situation, right? If we're going according to Vivian Gornick's definition of the situation and the story. So I already know what the situation is and what the setting and everything is. And I'm trying to figure out what is the story. So if somebody went through war, great, but why are you telling the story? What's the angle? What do you expect to be able to show? of the human condition that someone can relate to or learn from. Um, So it's harder that way because you have that, the facts, and then you're trying to align things properly and create a a, a good narrative. And with fiction, I start with, it could be a one-liner. It could be just a line somewhere, a sound, a smell leads me Mm -hmm. to, you know, start fiction. Um, It could be a beat, uh, raindrops. And then Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of, you know, something to write. So when it comes to editing both, um, I'm looking at nonfiction and I'm looking at make sure that everything flows properly and that, you know, you have facts correct and that the, you know, the emotional truth obviously is still there as in fiction. Um, But with fiction, I'm looking at, you know, the characters and I'm also looking at the plot. So it just, it, Mm -hmm. it, it really depends on um, the story being told in both instances. Right. Like each story kind of requires different, a different approach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I read a great essay you wrote. It was published in South writ large um, about moving to Appalachia. Um, and, and of course I recognize, you know, there's some similarities there with the, with the place where Hawa and Moses moved, moved to in the, in the story. But the thing that really grabbed me was, uh, your description of, of Liberia and its complicated history, which includes, you know, some, some really interesting ideas about the influence of America on Liberia. Would you just tell us more about that? Yeah, it's very interesting. And, and those are some of the things, you know, again, like when we were just, talking about nonfiction versus fiction, you know, those are some of the things you have to, you know, um, outline and um, ensure that you have, you know, those little pieces and nuggets in with nonfiction. Liberia Mm -hmm. is a rich country, um, a country with a rich history and also a troubled history and past. And it's just so, such an interesting, um, nuanced country and part of the world. It is the only African, um, the only American influenced African country. Mm. Um, and it was 
founded by African-Americans who left here to go make a new life for themselves um, in West Africa. And they landed in Monrovia, Liberia, Monrovia, which is named after the former President James Monroe. Um, everything from um, the language, um, the schools, is modeled, very much modeled after America, particularly the American South. So um, oh, the food, you know, um, the music, the music, you know, is a mixture, obviously, of, you know, African culture and American culture. But, I mean, there's a heavy American influence there. And so I grew up in, you know, a, a, a school system where you had the American school system and you had the Liberian school system. You know, I went to an American school mm-hmm. system that incorporated, for instance, African history alongside American history, you know, geography, mm-hmm. African geography, American geography. So I, you know, I kid mm-hmm. around with people sometimes and I'm like, well, I kind of grew up in America, in Liberia. Um, but, you know, that time is so long gone in that part of Liberia um, since the war isn't the same, you know, Liberia is, you know, that, that is a time that you can't, you can only capture now with memories on paper, you know, you can capture with art and you can capture with literary art. And so that's why it, it, it remains a, a big part of my story and a big part of my writing life. Yeah, that makes sense. I feel like, uh, you know, well, people are always talking about whether things are globalized or Americanized these days. And, you know, with, smartphones and internet and things like that. I feel like, you know, so many places have, have become heavily American influenced, but, um, yeah, definitely at that time, that would have been an absolute rarity. Yeah. Like in, in the, in the, the basic founding of the country. I read that when you were in residency at McDowell, you were working on a memoir that includes letters that you wrote when you were a child during the first Liberian civil war. Um, and to me that just, I mean, it feels really powerful to include those. I feel like sometimes, um, readers can have like a nice distance from things where they can view things. as like, Oh, that happened years ago. But those, I feel like those letters really create some immediacy and, and really bring readers to that. Um, how did you decide to include those? And like, you know, are there parts of that that's challenging? <laughs> it's very challenging. <laughs> and, um, I, I, I wasn't even thinking about it, honestly. And then my um, my dad sent me a, a whole packet of letters. I didn't even know they existed. Mm-hmm. I, I had um, kept a few diary entries and I always wrote um, as a child and I read a lot and I would write. And so my, my dad, I was separated from him and um, living in um, displaced, in, in homes that took in kids who were displaced, you know, during war or after war. Mm-hmm. I didn't have, you know, my family with me. And so I would write to them and my dad kept that communication. And so I was looking at it and part of it is just, oh, happy, you know, you know, happiness of seeing yourself at that age. And mm-hmm. then another part where they're just, I mean, I'm just bawling and just crying because I'm like, I mean, I knew I had these memories and I'm writing about it, but it it was just so stark to see it and um, to see some of the things that, you know, I said as a child or see some of the struggle and I was just innocently writing it out in these letters. And I can right. only imagine how my parents felt reading that and being, you know, feeling helpless. Um, but that, you know, having the space at McDowell helped me to just spread them out. And I felt as if I was spreading pieces of myself out and just writing to really capture it and spend some time alone to take it in and start to figure out 
where will I place this in the structure of this memoir? I've been writing for quite some time now, and it's hard. It's so difficult capturing trauma, pieces of your life that you've sort of compartmentalized. Um, And fiction, in a way, has been my escape. So every now and then when I either have a block or I can't continue with nonfiction, I take some time off and I go to fiction. And with fiction, my fiction, my nonfiction, the only thing they have in common are setting and emotional truth um, because the stories are, you know, so different, so very different, um, which is good. It should be. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I just, those letters truly helped me. That's so great. Um, so uh, speaking of residencies, I, I saw a few months ago that you won a place in, in the amazing residency that they have for women writers at the Mount, which for listeners who don't know is Edith Wharton's grand house and grounds in the Berkshires. Um, she designed it herself. I love Edith Wharton and I've always been kind of obsessed with, with the Mount and the idea of writing there is obviously incredible. So I'm just hugely jealous. And I was wondering <laughs> um, when you will be doing that and what you can tell us about it. Oh my goodness. Don't you love her? That That is what made me apply for this. I just mm-hmm. love her. I love her writing. I love the language. <laughs> I mean, it really, really, really yeah. is. I mean, even her everything from the themes to the writing and her life, how nuanced it, um, she mm-hmm. was as a person too. And I got to write from her bedroom, which was the coveted spot. And that's where she wrote um, all of her work. Um, I got to write from there and see some of the letters, you know, she wrote to, you know, her fellow writers. Um, it was just an amazing time. It offered us the, the space to create and to talk with each other about the work we were um, doing and to get some support um, that you can only get from people who are, you know, doing the same things you're doing. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a sort, it's some sort of validation as well to be able, I felt so honored and humbled to be able to receive that residency and know that, you know, people have read my work and they're basically kind of rooting for me, you know, saying, go mm-hmm. ahead, you know, create this, work on this. We, you know, we got you. So it felt so good. Um, and, you know, the writers I met and the whole group there, very supportive people. Oh, that's so great. So when, when did you do it? I didn't realize you had already done it. Yeah, I did. I did it in, um, what month are we in now? Uh, February, the months run together. I did it in (laughs) March, actually. I'm sorry. I did it. (laughs) I actually did the residency in March. Um, it was the week of my birthday and we had, we got to choose weeks in March and as soon as I saw the week of my birthday, I said, I have to have this one. And so it felt like the perfect birthday gift and vacation. Oh, that is so great. Oh, I love hearing that. I cannot believe you wrote from her bedroom. <laughs> That's incredible. How many writers were there Were there when you were there? Three writers when I were there. Okay. We were three. Yeah. That's great. That's very intimate. Um, so my last question is, uh, what are you working on now? Like, what's what's next well, um, after that residency, I, it, it really propelled me to, you know, just take a deeper look at, you know, my nonfiction again. So I'm really trying to wrap up, um, get into the next level of this nonfiction work, um, get some proposals in uh, and really rework parts of it, um, because almost as, it, as how spin reads, that's how I would like, you know, my nonfiction to read. I love when there's some rhythm and sound and a movement within a narrative. Mm-hmm. 
So I'm working on those finishing touches for my memoir. And we'll see where we go from from here on. I hope, I really sincerely hope that I get a space and a chance to be able to just finish this, polish it, create, mm-hmm. polish, and, and, and move on to the next step of this. It's about time, don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's these things, they really do take years and years and years. And every time I thought I was done, I was like, no, this really needs another pass, you know? <laughs> That's the life. Um, do you write short stuff as well when you're working on the longer project or are you just, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of tunnel vision when I'm working. I can only work on one thing at a time. Really? Yeah. I wish, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that's, you know, sometimes that's a problem and sometimes it's, you know, these, you get these bursts of inspiration and mm-hmm. I could be walking around and trying to recapture things or trying to go over sentences and saying, let me take a break and walk around for my memoir. And all of a sudden I see a tree or, you know, hear something in the distance. And then I hear these two or three lines beginning of a short of short fiction. And I'm like, ha. And then I go and start writing, you know, a few paragraphs of that, or I could be in the middle of sleep and, you know, um, think of a memory or hear something on TV and I'm immediately up again in writing. <laughs> you know, I usually write things out before I start typing. And so I'll write it out. And then if it continues, then I'm saying, well, the story is telling me to, to keep going. So mm-hmm. I can't say, you know, I work on one thing at a time, but I'm actually looking forward to focusing on that this year and next year, simply on nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds great. I can't wait to read it. Thanks. Cheryl Collins-Isaac, thanks so much for joining us. It's been really great to talk with you. Thank you so much. It's been great being here. It's been um, humbled. It's been a pleasure. I thank you, Emily, and I thank The Common for having me. Listeners, you can read Cheryl's story, Spin, and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org.